I know we've had a lot of people uh, out sick, and there certainly is this crazy thing that is happening this season. It seems like every year it's like, yeah, people are really getting sick. People are really getting sick. And um, this week I read uh, that a uh, famous TV evangelist uh, has publicly said, if, if, if you feel like you have the flu or uh, to keep yourself from getting the flu, inoculate yourself with the word of God. And I want to say, that is ridiculous. <laughs> that is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard. And I just, we can do better, guys. We, as a church, are trying to do better, to understand what is the word of God and what is it for it's not for nuts like that. It's for uh, it's for something else, and um, and so maybe you grew up with uh, having a weird relationship with the Bible or the church or something like that. We just want to recognize that that's real and that that's out there. We, we're trying to redeem that somewhat to get to the root of what the scriptures are about, and then engage with the scriptures in a healthy way that actually bring us into relationship with Jesus. And so. Um, we started this new series, in fact, last week, Robert Elkin started this series for us. We're calling The Story of God. And I want to put a definition up here on the screen because this is a definition that we in introduced in the last teaching series, and it's a working definition of the Bible that we're using throughout. We're just sort of adopting this definition of the Bible. And if, you, if you're curious about some of the lines in here or some of the words or what they mean or whatever, you can go back to the first series called The Bible in Authority, and you can just listen through a talk or two there, and hopefully that'll provide some context. You can also uh, talk to me anytime uh, after the service today. But the working definition of the Bible that we're using is this, that the Bible is a library of writings, both divine and human, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. The Bible is not one book, contrary to sort of a popular notion. I think, some, I think we pretty much get that, that the Bible, each, each of these sort of books that make up the Bible, these different writings, are different genres and different literary styles written by different authors, uh, spanning um, centuries, hundreds, uh, thousands of years. And so we, um, we have this Bible, which isn't just simply one book, but a collection of books. And the power of that is in thinking about how different each of those writings are. And yet, when we take a step back, we see that there is a cohesive narrative that those stories tell. That was not on accident. In the drama of scripture, we read this. We've got a quote, I think, on the, on the uh, screen here. The Bible has the shape of a story that is an immense, sprawling, capacious narrative. It functions as the authoritative word of God for us when it becomes the one basic story through which we understand our own experience uh, and thought and the foundation upon which we base our decisions and actions. So in other words, no matter what we say that we think or what we believe about the Bible, and even for those of us who have a good relationship with the Bible, the Bible only begins to function as God's authoritative word in our lives when we learn to interpret our lives through the story that the Bible is telling. That's why it's so important to say, well, can't we just read the verses and do what the verses say? Not exactly, because... Um, a verse out of context may lead us to do something or cause us to think something or believe something that actually might be really out of whack and not in line with actually the story that the Bible is telling. But more importantly than that, the Bible isn't meant to be digested one word at a time per se. 
It's important to understand the narrative of the scriptures because it's through that narrative that our lives make sense. And I would offer that it's only through the narrative that the Bible is telling that our lives actually make sense, which is important because I think a lot of us are trying to make sense of our lives. And we're trying to make sense of our experience in the world. Um, So it's important to understand the narrative of the scripture. So we're going to tell the story of the Bible in basically six acts. And we began last week with good creation. So can we put this up here? So this will give you a snapshot of the story that the the, the Bible is telling. We're taking each act and we're going to talk about those um, throughout this teaching series the story of God. Last week we talked about good creation. Today I'm going to talk about the fall. Next week we're going to talk about Israel and the covenants. Then uh, the next week after that we're going to talk about Jesus. The week after that the church. And then finally we're going to end the series with the renewal of, of, of all things. So today we enter a part of the story that helps us make sense of the tragedy and the heartbreak that we see and experience throughout our lives. And I just want to say, I'm going to take you to my grandma's house uh, as I preach this sermon. My grandmother, um, I grew up in Orlando, uh, and um, that's in Florida. And my, uh, I have a lot of family there too, so my my grandparents were there as well. My grandparents lived in this old, um, this old like massive house. It was almost like a haunted house. It even had like this weird trap door kind of thing. But it used to be like a dairy farm. And... um, and so it was just creepy. It was just cre- it was really cool, but it was really creepy. But I still loved going and spending the night at my grandmother's house when I was a little kid because um, my grandmother did not supervise very well. And there's a lot of things you could do in her house and like throw these spears that one of her sons brought back from a trip overseas. Anyway, there's lots of... <laughs> Lots of things that an eight-year-old could really enjoy and get into, but there was this one room, it was sort of the TV room, and it was in the front of the house just off the big living room that you walked into when you entered in, and my grandmother had something, now this was a long time ago because I'm an old man, but my grandmother had something called HBO, and as an eight-year-old, that really introduced me to the world in a profound way. There were things that I saw as an eight-year-old, number one, that no eight-year-old should see, um, but that have stuck with me for a very, very long time. And uh, on HBO, there were certain things, and I know that every sort of programming now contains this, but there were just things like nudity and monsters, and, and I was fascinated by both of those things, and to some degree still am, but it's <laughs> in a very redeemed and holy way now. And... <laughs> And so um, I'm going to take you to Grandma's house because in the story today, there's some nudity and there's some monsters. And this is a really tricky part of the story, but it's a really important part of the story. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles or on your Bible app to Genesis chapter 2. This will not be on the screen. I know you don't know what to do with yourself right now. This will not be on the screen, so you'll have to just follow along in, in, on your phone or something like that. But I'm going to actually read some selective verses. There's a lot of stuff in here. There's sort of a lot of ground to cover, but I want to synthesize it 
as best as I can today. I'm not at all advocating that we skip parts of the Bible. I'm just for time's sake, we're gonna approach it a little bit differently today, but take your time this week. Um, if you uh, are following along in the reading plan with us, you know we hit this like early on uh, in our reading, like day one, January 1st is when we hit this. And so I'm looking forward to coming back and commenting on some of what we've read. Um, so I'm gonna start in Genesis chapter two. I'll start reading in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So I'm going to skip a huge part here, but we're going to go down to verse 25 of Genesis 2. Adam and Eve, I'm sorry, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. I hope I didn't spoil that by telling you her name is Eve, but um, it actually just says his wife here in the text. Okay, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Here's the nudity. Now, the serpent, monster, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God from among the, tre uh, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Classic, the man says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So yes, I did. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Classic, the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And yes, I did. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed. Now there's this whole sort of line of curses that God proclaims now. And then I want to skip down to um, chapter 3, verse 21. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we won't find a more deliberate attempt to treat the problem of evil and temptation anywhere in the scriptures probably than right here in Genesis chapter two and three. A lot of us have questions again about why the world is the way that it is. What went wrong? Why all of the mess? Why the mess in the world that we see? Why, the, the, why your mess? Why my mess? What's up with the Kardashians? We have lots of questions. And when we read Genesis, one of the things that jumps off the page that we see, if we just sort of 
take it in is the interconnectedness that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 of all things, even in Genesis 3. We see that God creates all this stuff and he creates it in a series, sort of unfolds in the narrative as, as a series of days. And water's being created, it's being, or it's being separated, and so we have a sky, and then we have the seas, and all sorts of stuff is being created, of course, including um, Adam and Eve, man and woman. But what's amazing is to see the interconnectedness, or the shalom, the peace uh, that exists between the things that God has made. They're all individual separate things, but they're interconnected by the love and the peace of God. But then something happens in the garden, and that thing that happens in the garden fractures all of the connections that all that God has created have enjoyed. That thing that happens in the garden, it, it, it breaks not just a thing, but it breaks everything. And the story that starts out so good with God creating and God bringing, uh, bringing order to the chaos, it's thrown back into chaos by the events that unfold in the garden here in Genesis chapter 3. I just want to say, this is the world we live in. This is the world we wake up in. It's sort of this post-garden world. It's a world that doesn't always feel connected, not in good ways, at least. It doesn't always feel like there's shalom or there's peace in the relationships. In fact, we wake up to the reality that we are really, really fractured, that there's a chasm between me and you that there's a chasm between even people that love one another. There's a chasm between us and the earth itself. It seems like the earth wants us to get out of here, and we're trying to kill the earth a little bit. And, and it, we're even connected to people overseas. We see that the things that we buy or the things that we eat, now we're coming to understand, oh, wow, we're way more connected than we thought. Because our decisions and choices have an impact that sort of <clears throat> spreads out all over the globe or extends beyond us into everything. And that's because God created us to be connected and in the garden, this thing just gets broken. It gets fractured. God creates a good world in Genesis 1. But remember, there was still stuff to be done. So it's important, I think, to remember that God didn't, God didn't create the world and then just sit down and say, well, that's it. Nothing else is ever going to be created. He actually does his work. But then he calls um, man and woman into the act or the, 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 the partnership of creation, of ordering, of ruling, of reigning over the earth, of stewarding and bringing about all of the fruit that the earth had sort of this latent potential for, God invites us into this work of continuing it. So God creates a good world and never says a perfect world. I don't know about you, monsters don't live in my perfect world, but God does create a good world and it's a world that he's invited us into not just to live in, but to participate in creation and bringing order. God calls creation good, and it is good. You say, well, how good was it? Well, in Genesis 2.25, we read, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Yeah, that's good. But how is that good, or why is that good? This, I think, is sort of like, there's a reason why I think the author includes this line here in the narrative, and then another line very similar to it later on in the narrative. It's because in a way, this is one of the signs, maybe even the ultimate sign of life under God in a good world. It's the sign of human beings being together with other human beings, bearing their souls in intimacy, bearing even their bodies naked and unashamed. And our, our, our culture and context, I think it's important to say even unafraid, to be with one another exposed and unafraid and unashamed of what may happen to us. And Genesis 1 and 2 reveals this God's very good creation, but we get to Genesis 3 and we discover something really alarming, and it's that there is a monster in the garden. 
And this serpent in the narrative introduces the dilemma of the creation story. It's, it's when we meet this subtle, crafty, tricky monster that Adam and Eve are faced with a very big dilemma. And it's the first time that we, there's real tension in the story. Because this is the dilemma of the creation narrative. What will Adam and Eve do with the monster in the garden? That's the tension. That's the dilemma. In a lot of ways, that's our dilemma and our tension too. What do we do with the monster in the garden? That's the dilemma for all human beings. Now, I don't remember if I made a note to mention this later, so I just want to mention it now, that Adam and Eve, in the Hebrew, the name for Adam means humanity. And the, the, the name Eve means life. And so when we read about Adam and Eve, we can easily, and I'm even going to refer to them at, at times throughout the sermon today, as humanity and life. We can see the effects and understand the narrative and maybe even place ourselves more easily in the narrative when we understand Adam and Eve and who they represent. This is the dilemma. There are two paths now in front of Adam and Eve. Two paths exist for humanity and life when they meet the serpent. Listen to Genesis 3.1 again. I just read this, but I'll read it again. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice that the first thing the serpent does when he opens his mouth is question God. He questions more specifically God's word. Do you see that? This is the beginning of the end for us. When we question God's word, now look, we've dealt with some of the problems of the Bible, and I say dealt with it, we've just recognized that the Bible, there's a lot of problems in the scriptures, in terms primarily about how we read and understand the scriptures. It's problematic, it's a challenging, it's a challenging group of writings. But when we question the authority or the truth of God's word, we're already done. We're in trouble. And so this is exactly what the monster in the garden wants Adam and Eve to do, to question God, to question his word, to question God's intentions. Verse two, Genesis three, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Did God say you must touch it? I don't know. It's not recorded that he said that. Maybe he did. Maybe Eve's right. Maybe she's not. Whatever. The idea is this. She knows even going near that tree probably is not a good idea. And this is the most important sentence in the entire sort of narrative here. Listen, listen carefully to verse 4, Genesis 3. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if we just reset for a second, we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see God saying to Adam and Eve, you can trust me first. You can trust my word. And you can eat from all of the trees in the garden and you can eat from the tree of life. But what you can't do is eat from this other tree because if you eat from this other tree, you will die. God's saying, trust me on this. And then the serpent says, are you sure God can be trusted? Because if you eat of that other tree, I'm pretty sure. No, I'm certain you will not die. So what are the two paths in front of Adam and Eve at this point in the narrative? What are the two paths that exist? Well, the, the, the first path is this, that Adam and Eve will trust 
and submit themselves to God's knowledge of good and evil. That they will see themselves as creatures created by God. They will respect and thrive under the divine order that God has established on this good earth. That's path one. Stay the course. Path two. The second path is that Adam and Eve, instead of submitting themselves to God's knowledge of good and evil, they will um, hijack the definition or adopt the definition of good and evil that the serpent has given them. And they'll decide for themselves what's good. They won't, they won't trust God to do that for themselves anymore. They'll decide what's good and what's evil. And in doing so, they will vandalize God's good world. This is, this is really key. The serpent says God is keeping something from you. I mean, this is really the base of the lie. This is really the root, I should say, of the lie. That God says he's good and he's giving you instruction for life and he's provided these things for you, but even though he's given you all this stuff, there's still something. God's holding out. He's keeping something from you. But just recognize with me, please, that the whole narrative suggests that God is keeping something for them, not from them. And you saw just that little slight variation makes, makes all the difference in the world. And we can, and many of us do, I think we wake up in the morning, those of us are followers of Jesus, maybe some of us are seeking or exploring or maybe even skeptical, but we wake up in the morning and we, we sort of have this, we don't think about this consciously so much, but we, we, we sort of wake up and we live in the reality or an understanding of God that he's either keeping something from us or he's keeping something for us. All of the good that God creates in the garden was for them. God knows what's good for humanity. God is intent on providing the good for them. Adam and Eve, we see them in the garden. They have all of the good that they could ever want or ever need, but they believe the lie that there's more. And they believe the lie that God is holding out on them. Verse four again, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now that idea is a little problematic. The idea that Adam and Eve can be like God. But it's not problematic in the way that I think most of us assume that it's problematic. I think most of us assume that it's problematic because who can be like God? That's pride. We shouldn't, we shouldn't even think like this, but that's not really the reason why it's problematic. See, the, the tragic irony here, as Satan, as the, in the form of the serpent, says, you, you eat this, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God. The tragic irony is that they are already like God. They've been made in God's image. And only that, they're in friendship with God. They're in relationship with God. I mean, to be like God is to be in relationship with yourself. And when we read the narrative of the scripture, we see that God exists in a trinity, you know, this sort of like holy relationship. God is holy, one God, existing in relationship with himself. This is what it's like to be like God. It's to be in relationship with ourselves, to be in relationship with one another. Adam and Eve have all of this. To even be one with the environment the animals, and all the things that God has created. They have it. To be like God is to extend God's goodness and to bring peace into all creation. That is 
Adam and Eve. But instead of choosing path one, humanity and life hijack the definition of good and evil for themselves, and they bring chaos with them now everywhere that they go. That's the curse. Uh, this, is the, this is the single lie at the root of all brokenness. The world's brokenness, my brokenness, your brokenness, our collective sort of brokenness. It's the lie that God is keeping something from us and that he can't be trusted. And I think it's important to note, and we have a theology of this, that Adam and Eve took the poison. But that poison has spread throughout the bloodstream of all humanity and creation itself because we're all connected. We call this sin. So what is sin? Writing for a secular audience, Francis Bufford writes, and I forgive any offense in my reading of this, but I think it makes the point, and the truth is you probably heard worse than this on the sidewalk on your way to church this morning. Just... Bear with me. Remember, we're at grandma's house. We're going to get away with some stuff. All right. (laughs) He writes, for us, it refers to something, talking about sin, much more like the human tendency or the human propensity to F up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to F things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about in our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. Now I hope we're on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognized this as one of the truths about themselves. That's sin. And sin's effects are tragic tragic. Genesis 3, 7 through 8, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sew fig fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Gone is the beauty of it all. You see, gone is the intimacy Gone is the safety. Gone is the peace that Adam and Eve once enjoyed. The poison goes in and the whole thing unravels. The whole thing goes into chaos. From chaos to order with God and then from order back to chaos with us. Naked and ashamed, humanity and life, they hide from God in the shadows. Naked Naked and ashamed, humanity and life cover themselves up and hide from each other. Naked and ashamed, humanity and life blames everyone and everything around them. Naked and ashamed, humanity and life call what God made good bad. See, the poison goes in and the whole thing's broken. The whole thing is sick. Now, verses 14 through 19, they describe the extent of the unraveling, and you can read that for yourself. But theologically or doctrinally, this is known as the fall. So in orthodox or, orthodox or historic Christianity, of which we are a part, we understand that this event, this event of Adam and Eve choosing to believe the lie and taking the poison, we believe this to be the fall. 
and the result of that fall we're still living in. But the story, praise God, doesn't end there. Now, this is just the second act of the story, and I should just leave you now, but this, what a terrible place to leave off in a sermon. Like, I hope you make it back next week. If not, I don't know what to tell you. But, <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. Towards the end of Genesis 3, there's a little hint, and you may or may not have picked up on it, but there's a little hint that God is not done with humanity and life be just because they've taken the poison and turned everything back to chaos. Listen to this, Genesis 3, 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Now the beauty of Genesis 1, and even Genesis 2, is God making. God makes, and then he rests, and then, and then humanity messes things up. And how does God respond? He starts making again. But he makes something very specific. See, Adam and Eve, they clothe themselves with fig leaves, but fig leaves won't do here. See, something greater has to happen in order for Adam and Eve to really be covered. See, there has to be blood. There, there has to be, uh, there's a buzz. There, there has to be, that wasn't for effect or anything. I don't know what that was, but it scared me. I feel like I'm at grandma's house a little bit. There has to be blood. There has to be a sacrifice. And it's so subtle because it's not explicit. But for the first time, God makes a sacrifice to cover humanity and life. It's right here. Sin is introduced into the world, and as a result, we hide, we shame, we blame. And immediately, God goes to work to cover it. And when I say cover it, what I mean is to redeem it. Not cover it up like Adam and Eve are trying to do with the fig leaves, you see. But see, God has something in mind more than that. Not just to cover them up, but to cover them, to take care of the problem. So as we, as we close this morning, just think about implications. I, I wonder how we might interpret our lives through this part of the story that the Bible is telling. 1 John 1, 8 through 9, so this is obviously way after the story of creation is written. This is after Jesus has even come and died and resurrected and ascended back to heaven. And, and John writes in his letter, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us or cover us or redeem us from all unrighteousness. See, there are two possibilities here. It's like Adam and Eve have two pathways. One, we can claim to be without sin as sort of modern, intelligent, scientific people. We can claim to be without sin and live in the shadows and just continue in this perpetual cycle of hiding and blaming in our shame. Or two, we can confess our sin. This is so much a Christian thing. This is such a Christian thing to say, I tell you what, instead of someone telling on you, why don't you tell on yourself? Because when that happens, 
we are met with a God who pursues us. Who's running in the story? Who's hiding in the story? God isn't running or hiding from Adam and Eve because of their sin. They are running and hiding, and it's God that's coming after them. And God is coming after us with this incredible love poured out to us through his son and the sacrifice of Jesus. So we invite one another this morning to the table of Jesus like we do every single Sunday morning. And this morning we come confessing our sins. And I want to invite you this morning, to before you come to take communion, we'll have two stations up front and we'll have two in the back. Just take an extra beat, an extra measure. And just allow, and maybe even ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Uh, Just to confess your sin. I mean, some of you didn't even, you almost didn't come today because you, you felt ashamed and you still feel like you're having to hide a little bit. I just want to encourage you, just this is you, between you and the Lord, just confess. Confess that sin, whatever it is. So we come confessing our sins, but on top of that, we also come to the table trusting that through the sacrifice of Jesus that he, God will redeem us instantly, on the spot, forgive us and set us free. So we come this morning to find forgiveness and peace. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, can we just, just even right now, just let's take this moment. And I'm just going to give you a, a minute or two, uh, just of silence, to just allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to confess whatever comes out. Because I'm telling you, like, some of you feel the shame today. You've, you feel the hiding and the the blaming and the whole thing. You feel it. You feel the effects of it. You feel like you have to hide in the dark and cover yourself up in all sorts of ways. Some of you are going to be confessing sins that you've committed, and I think others of you are going to have to need to confess some sins that have been committed against you, just recognizing it's painful, I know. But to find life this morning. See, this this is not a... It's not an end unto itself. This is a means to an end, and the end being life. To see our lives ordered again. To see our lives restored again and our relationships restored. So let's just pause for a moment. Holy Spirit, come now and just illuminate our hearts and our minds. For some of us, we don't even have to think very hard because we just carry this thing around with us. We feel guilty and we feel ashamed and we feel all sorts of things, God. Father, it's because the poison's gone in and it's gotten to us as well. But we come to you now and we confess those things because we know that you are a good God who loves and forgives and heals and sets us free. So transfer us this morning from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We might live in the light, not having to pretend or hide anymore. So Holy Spirit, come now, just in these next moments of silence. Let's confess our sins before God now.